is something that nothing greater can be conceived of, and is possible to conceive of existing, and therefore must exist. What in the world does that mean? Welcome to Reasonable Faith. My name is Jillian Brown, and I will be guiding in our conversations as we talk about the necessary existence of God. That was an oversimplified summary of St. Anselm's ontological argument from the Proslogion. This argument is well known for being confusing. Let's try to make it a bit more approachable. Did you believe in Santa growing up? I did. I don't know. It's something that I held on to for a really long time, I think, (laughs) because my parents never admitted that it was not a thing, but... Yeah, it was something. Did you believe in, like, the Easter Bunny, too? Mm-hmm. It was all, all of the mythical creatures so, like, that brought you presents. Theory. Yeah, definitely. Thought and definitely believed in them. So when did you stop believing in this? Um, I want to say sometime towards the end of elementary school. Um, okay. I stopped believing because of, like, what people were saying. And I think it wasn't a very nice ending to, like, my childhood with people, like, talking about the truth. It was sad. So did somebody ever, like, straight up tell you... Santa Claus does not exist. Yeah, definitely. There was this uh, kid in my uh, in my class at one point that was just said it, and, I, it, and even then I was like, you know what? I don't I don't know if I believe you. And it just kind of hit me then, and I'm like, that's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm gonna ask you a silly question now. Okay. If we got 100 five year olds in New York City to all believe really really hard all at the same time in Santa Claus, would that make him exist? I no, it would not. <laughs> how about how about one thousand five year olds? No. Ten thousand? Nope. Is there any limit to the number of five year olds that we could get to believe in Santa Claus that would make Santa Claus exist? Sadly no. Okay. Why not? Because even though a bunch of people believe it doesn't make it true in that sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Um so like belief in something does not cause its existence, right? Right. Okay. Of course, simple belief in something does not bring it into existence or prove its existence. Yet, this is a common argument against Anselm. So, how does his argument stand? Let's talk to Dr. Turner again. In Anselm's proslogion, he's giving what we call an ontological argument for God's existence. Now, an ontological argument from, for God's existence is different than arguments called cosmological arguments because it's focusing on concepts rather than things that we observe in our experience. So cosmological arguments, their first premise is something like, hey, check it out, there's this universe that needs to be explained, or hey, check it out, there's this change that we need to explain or something. Anselm instead is just thinking about the concept of God and the concept of existence, ontos being Greek for existence. So the ontological argument is about thinking about the nature of existence and reasoning to, um, well, God's existence. Side note, uh, most people hate this argument. Uh, This happens to be my favorite one, uh, I think because it's, as I like to tell my uh, intro students, it's kind of like a philosophical magic trick. If you just think hard enough about this thing called God, boom, it's going to turn out that he exists. Anyway, 
So here's how it works. Uh, Anselm in the Proslogion is thinking about this verse in Scripture that says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Okay, well, what are we to make of this statement? They might think it's rude or something, but Anselm's not calling atheists fools. He's just repeating Scripture. He's just trying to think about what's going on when the atheist says God doesn't exist. And he thinks, look, there's really two possibilities. I mean, either the atheist doesn't know at all what they've just said. I mean, has no concept, like doesn't understand the word God, etc. Or the more charitable interpretation is that the atheist knows full well what they have just said. Namely, this object you and me, Mr. Theist or Mrs. Theist, uh, are talking about, that God person, well, that doesn't exist. And so Anselm goes, all right, let's think about what's happened here. So we'll construct an argument and we'll take as our first premise uh, the claim there's no God. And what we're going to try and do with this is show that it entails a contradiction. This is an argument form called a reductio ad absurdum, so to reduce it to absurdity. Okay, so premise one of his argument says God exists only as a concept in the mind. And that's just a fancy way of saying, when the atheist says there's no God, they know full well what they mean. Okay, so God exists as a concept in their mind, but not out in, you know, reality or whatever. Kind of like, you know, Darth Vader or Bilbo Baggins. They exist as concepts in our mind, but not, you know, out in the world, as it were. Okay, so that's premise one. Premise two is just going to think about God. All right, well, let's think about God. Well, God, by definition, says Anselm, is a being greater than which none can be conceived. So that's just stipulating the definition. When we, you know, me and you, Mr. and Mrs. Atheist, when we talk about God, we have in mind the following sort of idea. Um, and Anselm goes, the way I think about God, I'm just stipulating the definition, is that he's greater than anything possibly conceivable. He's the greatest conceivable being. Okay, cool, fair enough. All right, well, premise three. Here's where it starts to get contentious. Uh, premise three says a being that exists in reality, so outside of our minds, um, and exists in our mind, is greater than a being that exists only in our mind. So, you know, I like to think, you know, imagine a dollar bill. We can all imagine a dollar bill. Great, the concept of a dollar bill exists in our mind. Now, is it better to have the dollar bill also in reality than just in the mind? Well, probably yes. I can't go to the snack machine with just the dollar bill in my mind. Okay, that's all that Anselm's trying to say. Stuff that's out there in the world or exists like in reality, that stuff's better than just imaginary things. All right, so that's premise three. Now comes the very tricky conclusion to one, two, and three. So again, premise one was God exists only as a concept in the mind. Two says God is by definition a being greater than which none can be conceived. And three tells us something about existence. It, a being that exists in reality and in the mind is greater than a being that exists in the mind alone. So, turns out, Premise four, we can conceive of a being greater than a being greater than which none can be conceived. So I can think of 
a being greater than the greatest conceivable being. That should sound to you wrong because it is. That's a contradiction. Yeah. Right? So premise five is just, this is a contradiction. And so the conclusion, okay, so that thing that we assumed to move that reductio along, namely premise one, that God exists only as a concept in the mind, must be false. God exists in the mind and in reality. And in fact, he has to. It becomes... Um, logically impossible for God not to exist. Why? By positing his non-existence, we get a contradiction, and contradictions are impossible. All the premises are true, and the conclusion is true. Um, but I like it even more because it, it, it doesn't take any investigation. Uh, it merely falls out of definitions. Just thinking hard about the concept of God, it turns out that God can't even in principle not exist. I don't know. I just think that's kind of cool. And I, I maybe it's another just weird fact about me. I like to construct reductio ad absurdums in my own work. Uh, one of the best ways to show that an idea is false is to show that by assuming it, you entail a contradiction. And this happens to do that sort of thing. So I just get a kick out of it. <laughs> and it frustrates people. I like that too. It's something like, yeah. it's kind of like a, you know, in, in magic, when somebody performs like a sleight of hand trick, people get frustrated. Like, how did you do that? I know something happened. Um, same sort of deal. Why do people not like it? Uh, well, there's a number of different reasons. Um, so an early response from an early Christian monk, well, early, I mean, 11th century Christian monk, uh, contemporary with Anselm, called Gaunillo, suggested, he couldn't really put his finger on it, but he's like, something about the logic of this argument doesn't work. And that's because it seems like I can just plug in anything to this argument and show that it exists. So Gaunillo suggests, like out of uh, ancient myth, this island of the blessed, like the greatest conceivable island. Let's plug that into the argument and see what happens. Well, as it's going to happen, you get another contradiction. And he's like, oh, I guess then the island of the blessed exists. But of course, he knows as everybody else knows, nope, there's no such island. Um, so if I can demonstrate that something exists that doesn't in fact exist, something's wrong with the argument. Um, and so he's like, Anselm, you got to, this can't, this can't possibly work, can't possibly work. Um, I can prove the, you know, there's the greatest conceivable gummy bear or Oreo cookie or dog, and there is no such thing, so the argument's flawed. So people have, you know, thought about that and, you know, thought, ah, the argument's doing, doing way too much, so that's, that's not good. Um, Immanuel Kant, though, came along with a, a stronger complaint because this way, I mean, Anselm responds to Gaunillo's argument, I think, in an appropriate way. We can talk about that if you want. But Immanuel Kant comes along later with a supposedly more devastating argument. Immanuel Kant supposed that existence is not a great-making feature of anything. Because great-making features are, well, they're predicates. They're, ad they're describing terms. And he thinks that existence is not a describing term. Um, you're not adding anything to a concept at all by saying that it exists. And so that premise three that says a being that exists in the mind and in reality is greater than a being that exists in the mind alone, that premise is false, he thinks, because existence is not a predicate. So people, so people have very routinely pointed to Kant as though he gave uh, the final word on the matter.
think about two triangles in your head. Okay, so now let's do normal predicates. Imagine a pink one and a green one. Can you do that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now imagine one in your head, like imagine again two triangles and add the predicate existence to one of them. Has any of the triangles changed? No. No, right, exactly. So Kant's like, see, it's not a predicate, right? You're not doing anything. So premise three is false. Okay. Yeah, that's the idea. Is a mistake uh, with what Anselm's doing. Um, in the first place, let's just think about whether or not existence, notice it's not just existence, it's existence in reality. And let's see if it makes a difference, uh, which I've already s sort of teased out. What's better, a million dollars in reality or one that you can just think about? Well, Definitely in reality. reality. And what would you say the difference is? Well, that exists in reality. That obviously is a conceptual difference. That obviously is a great making feature. It seems obvious to me in any case. Um, and even if you didn't want to say, oh, uh, existence in reality is a difference maker, well, then we can think about another kind of existence that Anselm's trying to think about, I think anyway, is necessary existence. So having the sort of existence such that one can't fail to exist. Now here I think it will make a conceptual difference because, uh, and sorry, this might get a little jargony, but philosophers like to talk about necessity and possibility in terms of what we call possible worlds, ways in which reality could have been. Necessary items exist in all the ways in which reality could have been. So like two plus two equals four is true in any way reality could have been. There's no such way two plus two couldn't have been four. So it's a necessary truth. Okay, well now if we think about adding necessary existence to things, we can start conceiving of all the possible worlds and start asking whether or not it makes a difference. Imagine I said, there's a difference between Jillian's necessary existence and her mere possible existence. Well, it looks like then we've got two conceptually different things. We've got a Jillian that exists in every logically, logically possible world and a Jillian that exists only in some. Well, Anselm seems to be saying God exists in all of them. And that does seem to be different than just mere existence alone or existence only in the mind or non-existence at all. Um, and if so, then Kant's just wrong. This is a predicate that we're doing. greatest thing that can be conceived. Because it is possible to imagine him, he must also exist outside the mind. I should call my dad. Well, the idea of God is not like any other idea. That's part of what makes Anselm's ontological argument work. I think for modern people to get their heads around Anselm's argument, you have to understand what kind of argument it is. This is about the universe of the laws of logic. People in Anselm's day thought an awful lot more about logic than probably people in our contemporary society do. Anselm was a Benedictine monk, and the monks of his day uh, would sit around and chant a thing called Barbara Salarent, 
which is this list of, I think, 26 Italian names that help you to know which uh, syllogisms work and which ones don't. Um, So like the name Barbara has three A's in it. And an A statement in logic is a universal affirmative. So it says all apples are fruit. And so it's A-A-A. So in the first figure, an A-A-A syllogism works. Logic was a really, really big deal. And so people like Anselm would sit around thinking, okay, well, how do things fit together coherently? How does, uh, how does logic work and, and how do ideas work? And they had a really high opinion that the, the logic was descriptive of reality, that the world around them obeyed these laws, and those laws couldn't be broken. And that's important if you're going to understand the way that Anselm's argument works because it counts on the laws of logic working properly because he starts with this idea that Okay, well, you have this idea in your mind, and whenever anyone talks about God, they've all got the same idea of this being with ultimate excellence, something that, that you can't imagine anything greater than that, that has ultimate greatness in all of its attributes, all of its attributes are good, and it's just perfect and excellent, and you can imagine that in your mind. But then uh, anything that is in the real world has a greater impact on life than any idea of a thing that isn't in the real world. So you have a unicorn in your mind and you have a horse in your mind. Well, there are horses in the real world and horses are useful for all kinds of things, but unicorns aren't at all because they don't They're not real. They don't exist. If something's in the real world, it's greater than anything that isn't. But God is the greatest thing that can be imagined. And it's just not possible that the greatest thing that can be imagined would be lesser than a thing in the real world that would be greater than that because it exists. If that's the case, then God has to exist. It becomes a a contradiction in the laws of logic. And Anselm would tell you, if you break the laws of logic, you break reality. It has to happen that there is a God. There's an argument against it that says, well, you're, Anselm, you're just defining things into existence. What if there was an island greater than that which no island could be conceived? And then you run the same argument and that supposedly would produce that island. The concept of an island does not contain within it the idea of excellence. Because uh, the, the, but the idea of God does. The idea of God has within the essence of the idea of God is this idea of excellence and perfection And so it's not essential to an island that it be perfect. But it is essential to the concept God. If two people are arguing about God, they're both talking about this thing with absolute perfection as part of its essence, part of its essential nature. 
And since that's inherent to the concept, then when you have something that is essentially greater than anything else, and at the same time, actual things like an actual flatworm is greater than the idea of a unicorn because it's real and the unicorn's not. Well, if God is like the unicorn, but at the same time, within the essential nature of the concept is greatness that can't be surpassed, how can a flatworm be greater than that? And so the laws of logic say, no, that's a contradiction in the nature of that term. You, you, can, you can't use that term. That term can't even exist without the thing that it's referring to also existing. People tend to either love this or hate it. Well, honestly, most people do. I tend to be kind of on the fence. I'm not entirely persuaded by this one, but I like it because it's kind of interesting, but it doesn't, it's not the one that I find most compelling. I think there are better arguments, but if you really love logic, this one will get you. So, by the definition of God and the argument Anselm provides, God is a necessary existence. It is reasonable to believe in the greatest possible being. It is reasonable to believe in God. Thank you for listening to Reasonable Faith, a beginner's exploration of classical apologetics. If you found this podcast helpful, please consider sharing it with a friend or leaving a five-star review. See you next time.